How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 121. I'm going to do it, Zeke. I'm going to do it. I, okay. I'm going to do it. Yep. We messed up, Zeke, last How week. How did we mess up? We should have done Salo or the 120 Days of Sodom as our film last week. We should... So apparently that's a joke. I've that is been a explained... joke. Someone laughed. I guarantee it. Someone just laughed. Okay. Driving to work in their cars. We appreciate that one person that laughed at the joke. <laughs> Multiple people laughed, I guarantee. <laughs> I needed to do it. How have you been, Zeke? I've been good. Um, obviously very busy. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but I did manage to catch uh, a couple of films, so that was oh, yeah. nice. Well, you know, before we jump in, yes. it's actually a momentous occasion. Zeke, this is the final time, for now at least, that we are doing... A quote. Now, last week we wrapped up my quotes. And remember, mm-hmm. we did our, our uh, what's it called? The um, I keep forgetting the name of it. Two Up. Two Up, that's it. We did our Two Up, and you won. You elected for the final quote for the 2021 film quote for episode 121 that I quote you a film. Mm-hmm. Now, this is actually quite... Uh, this actually works out quite well because I have the stats here. Of course, we've elected... We're probably going to not do this for a little while because it's going to be a little too hard to start quoting films from 1922, 1923. We just haven't seen that many films from those earlier decades of yes. film. Which is okay. That is completely fine. Now, I looked at our stats, and it's actually pretty fascinating. Zeke, it is so tight that whether you get this quote today correct or wrong is actually going to dictate whether you are the ultimate champion of quotes. Really? I am not joking. You are currently 13 correct to 6 incorrect. Okay. I'm currently 13 correct to 7 incorrect. Wow. Yeah. Now, that doesn't include Stephen stealing the big short quote. I didn't count that. Okay. But if you get this right, then you will be 14 and I'll be 13. Okay. Which which is even more surprising because you actually had less overall quotes than I did. I think I got... Including today, I actually got one more chance to get a correct quote. So for however reason, I think we started at eighty-one, so that's why I kind of yeah the numbers got a little messed up because we didn't yeah we didn't start the exact start of a decade, but yeah. So Zeke, I've grabbed a quote. Okay, it's a big quote. So if you get it before I finish, that's totally fine. Okay, but I'm just gonna roll with it from a from a 2021 film. Okay, and I will say we have. Both seen this film and discussed it on the show. It's some capacity. Okay. <clears throat> All right. And there is a bit of language, by the way. There's just a little bit. Okay. Just for everyone. Here we go. I don't give a fuck. Unlike her, at least I'm consistent. You can't hang on everything on identity. You can't say that I brilliantly subverted this trope because I'm black, but I fell into this one because I'm a fucking man. Identities are constantly shifting. Does the male gaze exist if a filmmaker is gay and not straight? And to what degree? What if they're asexual? What if they're transitioning and you don't even know it? You can only look back at things and wonder what the fuck it all means. I mean, why did Ben Hirsch and Selznick Selznick, two fucking Jewish men spend so much time on Gone with the Wind? To this day, no one explained to me why the fuck Billy Wilder made Spirit of St. Louis and lionized that Nazis bastardized Lindbergh, huh? Or why I I'm getting these names all mixed up. Ida uh, Ida Lupino. I, I, I can jump the in if you like. And, sorry, I can jump in if you what, like. What do you think? Uh, this is? It's Malcolm and Marie. 
I have an entire page of this. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there's a lot of, like, Jewish names. And... I am the champion. <laughs> you are. You I are. I am the champion. You are. Um, yeah, look, on. that was the 2021 film Malcolm and Marie we did on episode 100 and I'm going to say seven. It might have been eight. Okay. But not too long ago. This is, I'm taking a photo for you now because of my double monitor situations hinted right now. That is the length for the quote I was about to read to you. <laughs> that that entire monologue I yeah, was about to read to you. I don't, um, obviously we had a very in-depth conversation about that. So check out that episode to see our insight on that. But Jake, uh, what have you caught in the last week? So um, I've caught a lot, actually. And uh, I want to, since we're entering our decades challenge, I want to sort of extend that challenge personally, where each decade, of course, we're doing the 2020s film this week. Yeah. I'm going to try and catch mostly films or classics from that decade that I haven't prior. So next week, for example, I still haven't seen Ex Machina, and that is definitely a 2010s film that is very representative of the decade, I feel. Blade Runner 2049. So those are films I want to try and catch next week as an example. Um, this week's a little tougher because anything that's come out in the last year and a half is still pretty fresh, pretty mm-hmm. new. Um, so, do you want me to start with sort of the more exciting one that we both would have seen, or do we want to do that a little later? I'm going to do that later. We'll do that okay. last. Cool. Um, I'm keen to do that. I know we've both watched that, right. and we've both got uh, things say, to say. Run, run through some of the stuff that. I don't know that you've seen. Cool. All right. Well, in that case, um, so last night I caught Mortal Kombat, the 2021 adaptation, of course, from the video game. Actually, an Adelaide production. So not too far away they made this film, which is exciting. Yeah. yeah big budget film, HBO Max, all so that. So I've heard some things about it. Okay. Um, I heard it's obviously not as bad as the 90s ver- uh, depictions. Okay. Um, that's what I've heard. And I've heard some of the action sequences are actually quite strong. Right, um, so... That's all I've gotten from it. Right. From, like, is that what you've read or, like, people have told you uh, that personally? Public opinion. Okay. General viewer interesting. opinion. Yeah, so... I sort of went on a bit of a journey with this one. It's interesting you bring up the 90s film because, you know, as I mentioned, HBO Max, big budget, that kind of thing. We haven't had a lot of those cinematic experiences in the last um, year or so. So I was directly comparing this to... Uh, Godzilla vs. Kong, uh, which are very comparable films, you know, big budget films, HBO, all of that jazz. So, comparing it to that, I was like, oh, it was actually pretty solid. I quite enjoyed it. It sort of has the same fallings of like, oh, the score's pretty generic, and it feels like the editor was on ADHD meds mm-hmm. or like, you know, trying to just, you know, jump from beat to beat to beat to beat. Like, films just don't want to relax anymore with scenes yep. like these big budget things. Has all those same issues, but I also didn't mind because I was like, well, you know, there's a lot of... I did like the action scenes. I thought they were engaging, and I really loved um, Sub-Zero as the villain. He was actually really kind of scary and terrifying in the way he used his ice abilities and the way they look on screen is really cool. I liked all that. I think more than the action, I actually think the reason to see this in the cinema would be Kano and his performance because he's sort of like on paper that the the Jar Jar Binks of the film in a way in terms of, oh, he's the one who gets all the funny lines. But there's something about the way they did in this film and uh, Josh Lawson's performance in it where he's got the thick Australian accent and he's sort of this motor-mouthed guy. He sort of made it work 
where it generally is really funny, a lot of the stuff he's saying. Okay. And it kind of fits into the tone they're going for, I guess. So I that's how I walked out of the film, being like, okay, there's a lot of positives here. It was solid. And almost immediately after, I just started thinking about it. I'm like, well, am I comparing this to the wrong movie? Should I be comparing it to the 90s film mm-hmm. that you mentioned? Or the, I think there are a few films from the 90s. Yeah. I think 95 is the original one. Um, should I can be comparing it to the games and the whole purpose of like you know what made the game special in the first place once i started looking at it from that perspective i was even more lukewarm on it okay because it became that thing of well you know what you know people i think a lot of people do consider the 90s films quite bad but it's like it's there's still a charm to it you know i thought of bill and ted and how the second one has so much more expressive interesting production design of like what hell looks like and what futuristic stuff looks like and Mm -hmm. then the new Bill and Ted is just sort of like, it looks like an Apple store where everything's just kind of clear and white and mm-hmm. not as interesting or as expressive. I kind of got that same vibe. The personality's just not there. It's just like little things like that. I'm like, it, it's actually really bland. So it's like, I kind of enjoyed it when I was sitting there with the popcorn, just, just viewing it. But thinking about it, it just kind of started to fall apart in a lot of ways where... A lot of things just don't... And they don't need to make sense specifically, but the film does try to take itself really serious, mm-hmm. which I kind of like that they try to, but then it falls under the own weight of, like, characters would kill another character be like, fatality. And it's like... The, the, you can't be trying to be this cheesy, mm. self-referential thing, but then trying to be serious and establish this, you know, bigger um, franchise that they want to make clearly. And so I, I've really got to... Not a love-hate relationship with, but like a uh, satisfied... It sounds two... like you finished on an indifferent note. Yeah, yeah. I It's definitely in the, the two-and-a-half-star realm for me. Like, it sort, of, it sort of lost some points the more I thought about it. So, yeah, ultimately, it wasn't too... For, like I said, if you're into the Kano funny... you, I think you would find him really funny. Mm. And you'll get a kick out of being in an Australian cinema where everyone sort of gets the humor. It's like sort of Tiger's humor really works in Tiger's hometown. Yeah. Kind of that type of humor. I think that would work, but uh, maybe not, maybe Americans won't quite click with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like you said, I'm, I'm just sort of like, eh. I know I'm, I'm going to forget that I have seen it very shortly. So there That's is fair. that. Yeah. Um, and some of the other stuff I saw really quickly, I'll just mention is, uh, you know, a few days ago we had a, me and my brother and one of his old mates and, and my brother's girlfriend, we all sort of got together and had a night out, uh, you know, on the couch eating pizza. And we watched a couple of things. We watched a bit of the Dave Chappelle show, which I've never actually seen before. Mm-hmm. He's 2003-2004 um, show, which I thought was more of a stand-up special. It's actually more just of a skit show. And he stands in front of an audience and introduces the skits. Um, but it's ultimately like a very cheesy early 2000s skit show, which is still very funny, if not very raunchy and very like oh this does not hold up today sort of comedy <laughs> <laughs> but you know it was a good crowd for it like yeah know, we all knew what we were getting into and you know laughing ourselves as mostly white people watching the show so uh there was that and we also watched a short documentary called long shot on netflix uh which is the true story of uh Juan uh or ha- is it one it's j-u-a-n i always forget yeah, the Juan. j is sort of silent yeah so Juan catalan who was falsely accused of murder and the documentary focuses on the story of them trying to get his alibi since he was actually at a baseball game during the murder. Mm-hmm. And it's like becomes this whole story of how they kept having to find little bits of proof of him being photographed. Ends up involving Larry Davis, uh, Larry David and Kirby Enthusiasm that he actually ended up in a shot during that 
show mm-hmm. that they were actually shooting at that baseball game. So it was kind of like a wild, crazy story about how we got off. But it's also like this weird, eh, a lot of weird hyper close-ups in the interviews. It's it's 40 minutes long, which, you know, I mean, I have a history of making things that are roughly 40 minutes long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but on the same token, it, it felt weird in this context. It's like, is this just like one episode of a wider crime series? Mm-hmm. Like, it just felt like it didn't have much of an identity because it was so short and bite-sized. But um, it was fine. I absolutely recommend it. That's fair. Yeah. So, what have you been on the hunt for, Zeke? Um, so Mr. I caught Mr. Zeke. two films other than the mutual film that we caught in the last week, yep. and obviously the film of the week. I uh, did manage to sit down and watch Adrian Lin's Indecent Proposal, um, which oh. had been added to Netflix in the last, uh, I say, the last month or so. Right. Um, basically, it it's a nineteen ninety three film starring Demi Moore, Woody Harrelson, Robert Redford. And it sort of uh, involves a young couple, Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson, um, being proposed by a very creepy and quite antagonising Robert Redford character Mm. that he um, offers them a million dollars for a night with Demi Moore. Oh, interesting. Hence the title, Indecent Proposal. Right. Um, It was okay. Uh, it was okay. just under two hours. Uh, it held my attention for definitely at least the first half. Um, the second half, I kind of petered out a little bit in my, and kind of checked out it. Performances are all really strong, but I, I find that the uh, the hook, the obviously the the the, the so the premise the, you just... the proposal right right a, right. Uh, comes very early in the film and basically the second a uh, big portion of the film is the fallout the paranoia that it creates and i think the question was more uh interesting when it was unspoken when right. rather than watching the fallout and um so uh, yeah it was just a, it was just a kind of a nice middle of the road sort of uh, 90s film the other film i caught actually caught this morning Hmm. Um, and it's been kind of a film that I, I've heard stuff about and I've been meaning to get around to it uh, Age of Adeline um, and it's just a it's a romance film probably is it's yeah, a romance drama film and it, and it has um, Blake Lively in it and hmm. um, basically centres around this character Adeline who due to some um as disclosed by this sort of anonymous narrator, uh, certain events transpire and she ends up not aging. So she was oh. born in 1906 or something, 1908. And then she ends, and it, it centers around modern day. Right. And she starts. So she's lived nearly a hundred years or maybe more yeah, than Yeah, and hasn't aged point. past the age of 29. Right. Because of this event that happened. Interesting. And she had a daughter and her daughter now is at the end of her life. Like, Whoa. Um, so there's the kind of yeah. the interstellar situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a romance film, and she ends up starting to date this this dude who just so happens that her dad, who is played by Harrison Ford, mm. was a lover earlier in the 70s and stuff. Oh. So it's got a couple of layers to it. I actually kind of really enjoy it. I really, mm. really like Blake, like, her performance. Right, um, I think she's great. Um, it's kind of just a Blake Lively from Green Lantern. 
the yeah. most famous role. <laughs> and it, I think it's just a really um. This is gonna have filmography. I, I kind of like these sort of play around with time, like about mm. time. I love about time, and this film kind of sort of has a, a different way of going through it, uh, talking about it. But um, yeah. It's probably just a little too long. It's two and a half hours. Oh, jeez. Um, is it? It says here it's 112 minutes. Two and a half hours. Maybe I have the extended cut. Maybe. Mine, had... says, mine says 100 and... I think mine says 160 minutes. I had a similar thing where I thought I was going mad when I watched um, Dogville, the Lars von Trier film, where I, the, I had it on DVD that I rented from the store, and it was two hours long. I was like, okay. And then every single source I looked up, IMDb, Letterboxd, everywhere, said it was a three-hour movie. Mm. And I could not find the existence of a two-hour cut. No one acknowledged it. I was so confused. So maybe it's the other way around for this film. So it's directed by Lee Tolland Krieger, who Mm. actually has done a film called Celeste and Jesse Forever with Rashida Jones and Andy Samberg. So maybe I'll give that a watch. Um, He seems to be very much into his romance sort of films um well I'm, I'm like looking through it's very he hasn't got he's got three feature films it looks like um including yeah this i'm looking one. at this modern love and uh denise's not feature or are not features to be grammatically correct yeah, so vicious kind <laughs> and the other one alison pill look at that very nice yeah so maybe so i'll give her more stuff both and the other two have got pretty decent casts actually so yeah. um Definitely will be giving those a look. Um, so they're the two films I caught in the last week. I also managed to catch, and I know the second episode was out yesterday, Friday. Mm. I haven't caught the second episode yet, but the pilot for Star Wars The Bad Batch. So um, what in the world is The Bad Batch? Because I've seen things pop up for this. I'm like, I don't know so what this is. The Bad Batch, probably the best way of comparing it is obviously in terms of Star Wars properties, mm. there was the Clone Wars TV show, which um, sort of towards the back end definitely skyrocketed into kind of popularity and, right. and had a lot of love and then they also did another animated show when disney acquired lucas arts they actually cancelled the clone wars they did mid- rebels yes is that a thing yeah yeah cool so disney acquired lucas arts and they were mid-season six of clone wars at that point they cancelled the clone wars project mm. so season six is a half season um, and has a very kind of at that point in time we didn't realize there'd be a seventh and final season um, oh, okay so it actually ends kind of jarringly mm-hmm. um and so that happened and then i think five years into what this deal with well, this acquisition they conceded oh we're going to do season seven and it's going to tie in with the episode main, three uh, episode three in particular right and this was really important because not only that, but it also supports the properties like Mandalorian and and Kenobi, mm. because obviously um, the whole introduction in season two of Mandalorian of Ahsoka was like the joining of yeah, the, those yeah. universes and Rebels. So the funny thing was when Disney acquired LucasArts, they cancelled Clone Wars and told them to start Rebels. So Filoni, being the creator of that, moved into creating Rebels, which tied in with his Clone Wars show. Right. So Bad Batch is kind of the best, is the, between the three animated shows is going, is the direct bridge between all three shows. Mm. Um, and it follows like a collection of 
specialized clones that weren't affected by order 66 because of their enhancements interesting um so that's why it, they are the bad batch yeah they're, you know, they're <laughs> close like, credits are roll um credits. So it's really just an extension of the animation shows, and it's probably just going to bolster things like Mandalorian, Kenobi, mm. um, bridge those two shows clearly. Um, yeah. So we get to see and kind of keep track of characters and stuff. That's it was a fantastic pilot. Um, the one thing that has come really beneficial out of the uh, Disney acquisition is money is no longer a problem for them. So uh, okay. the animation yeah. quality has from the pilot especially it just went through the roof mm. like it's just the, the quality is is incredibly impressive now compared to those earlier seasons like it's vastly improved um yeah it could be a case of disney recognizing like hey people really do like these animated shows of star wars that we do like let's really let them take the time with the animation and make i think it really they're just good. giving and it's just they're just giving full because he's the guy who hasn't wronged the fan base at any point in time but it's still right. appealing the no blood bad blood <laughs> no nothing um, and so i think they're just going to keep giving him this stuff and then like keep feeding the mandalorian keep feeding those sort of mini series um those series and then eventually he might get a film out of it but i think like we were talking about with mcu star wars is moving towards the shows and i mm. think it'll benefit from being predominantly shows over um over movies now yeah because the main story has been told so we don't need to keep coming back to that when we've got these shows that can kind of just help what we've always wanted to expand that universe more to explore different parts of i mean it's a galaxy yeah and i think that that's what i mean that's what they tried to do with harry potter but then they tried to oh well, the wizarding uh, yeah the wizarding the world the wizarding world cinematic universe or whatever it's called yeah and then, then they kind of fell short with, they fell short with that because they tried to create another Voldemort s character well that um, character's always he's probably the character you would make the enemy based on like the history that was alluded in the last couple of books mm. I just think this movie suck yeah <laughs> they just they're not great films so they just like and Ugh. I think if they ever wanted to go back to the Harry Potter well going into a show format might be the way to go um mm. there was a rumor of a hbo show like we're gonna do something having these i mean if there's been one proof from these mcu films and the other thing i've watched in the last week is a couple of our friends and i have started the chronological watch of the mcu oh interesting uh, so they well, they did it and i joined in for a couple of movies and i caught avengers for the first time since i think avengers came out wow the um, original the original and yeah. i saw thor and they were the two i came in on and my god thor has m- more dutch tilts than i've seen in any modern yeah, day that, that... it's absurd <laughs> yeah and it is that's easily one of the most boring films right on the pl- jesus they've got like it i i and the funny thing is I remember I hadn't seen Thor when Avengers came out and I went and saw Avengers in the cinema. Right. And I was 10 minutes late to the like the start. So I missed all of the Loki oh, going and getting the Tesseract. Right, yeah, the whole intro I, prologue I scene. just And I didn't even know who Loki was at that point because I hadn't seen Thor. Yeah. So it, it's actually a... 
it's funny that all out of all those films that come before Avengers, the one you need to actually watch the most is Thor. Because it has the most... In terms of, like, the villain. Like, the villains in that one. I remember that even kind of blowing... Plot. even that. Well, that kind of blew my mind. I'm, I still remember it, because I was sort of in the camp of, like, oh, I loved Iron Man, you know, as yeah. a kid. And I loved the Hulk, because I was a huge Hulk fan, and that didn't really end up being all that relevant to Avengers, because, obviously, of the recast. But I, I was kind of resistant. I didn't care about Thor or Captain America. I'm sure I at least watched... I think I watched Cap before Avengers. And the funny thing is that's probably the, the but, most useless out of all of them. Well, um, I mean... Because it, his it, backstory is explained in Avengers in, like, a very small... Yeah, I guess so. Like, they're, it's not... Like, what I'm saying, like, from an integral story point, the only one that is actually concrete you kind of need is that one. Right. Um, which is funny because it's probably the worst out of all of those real earlier ones. Right. Um... It's and it was just it was funny to watch it again because it it's like weird to think how far it's come from that point. Um, yeah, well, that, that's the thing, and 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 to tie it back to you were talking about shows and stuff. It's like I think it actually I actually have come around. I think I think it is a good idea that MCU are doing more shows now because that is how that story is told. It's told like a TV mm. show. This very extended, ongoing story that doesn't seem to have yes. an end point i mean we can definitely go into it more in depth especially when the black widow film we do that on the show because, right yeah but um, even just the formula of doing it, i'm actually coming around to it yeah than doing tv shows but um yeah that's pretty much all i caught bar film of the week and the film we're probably about to just jump into yeah so we've been teasing this film zeke that we're about to talk about now yes so 121 weeks we've been at the show and uh, we got our first screener. Yes. So we're about to talk about yeah, we're about to talk about a film that won't come out until the twentieth of May, with a preview in Adelaide and Perth respectively on the nineteenth of May. The film we're talking about is I Blame Society. Now, this is one I've actually had on my watch list for a few weeks because I knew one of the people on Letterboxd I followed watched it and she really loved it. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll put this on my radar. And voila, we mm. got given access to watch it for free. <laughs> so this film was directed, starred, and written by Gillian mm. uh, Wallace Horvat, um, and produced by. So uh, all the all the things, all of the stuff. And <laughs> when you watch the film, you kind of understand why this definitely feels kind of like a, a her baby kind of film. Yeah, it definitely leans um, into um, the the whole concept of her pioneering this film and. Uh, the idea that it is sort of a low-budget film. They definitely lean into that to its mm. benefit, I think. They definitely this sort film of don't shy away from it. It's very meta. It's got some real serious uh, production context that it wears on its sleeve. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what was your ultimate takeaway? Um, okay, there were definitely things I enjoyed. Um, I think it's a... it's It comes in, I think, just over 80 minutes. 84 minutes. 80, okay. Um, there were positives. I uh, think um, there were times I was a little uh, lost. Um, okay. But I really like things like the... Uh, so, okay, this is... There's, a, said, this, there's, there's a, a lot, lot to, to talk about with this um, film. There's actually a it, lot to say. We away. actually joked that as much as we love and we greatly appreciate getting the screener and we're always open to if anyone wants us to watch a movie and talk about it on the show, we're already up Warner for Warner Brothers, it. Disney, we're here yeah. for you. 
Because, I mean, this is, we talked about, it was one of the foundational aspects of our show, like our theology here is we were always about talking about our own journeys and talking about other people's journeys and supporting mm. as much local or even just in you know independent content as possible and this we've always thought of this place as a platform for discussion of film whether whatever the scale more than a uh, review show absolutely example, yeah um which is why we, we loved having this it was just funny because it's like we did the 2020s this week on and it just came a little too late yeah, for this us. this would have been this, a perfect film of the week for our cat. 2020s discussions, but it just came a it week It probably late. could have warranted a 35-minute conversation. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, there is a lot to unpack with it. I Obviously, you've got to take into consideration, like you said, the budget, the budgetary constraints. There were a couple of in- things, interesting decisions that were made that I didn't quite understand. Um, like Even from the opening scene where it's a sit-down interview mm. um, and she put um, the, you know, there was a screen overlay, like a, like the classic, like this is a camcorder recording. Um, oh, yeah, you got like the time there code a of, the like, not, stuff. There were a couple of like not... Oh, the time code was okay. There were a couple of times that there were like motion graphic, like overlays that I didn't really understand why they were there because other stuff was so like found footagey, sort of what like overlays? oh, I'm recording. What do you mean? Well, yeah, like th- that sort of stuff, like putting like the recording like overlay with like the time code, and then sometimes there would be none of that. I, I right, it it was that's it, sort of a staple of found footage genre, mm. though. Yeah. Sort of the mix and match of that, because I I definitely. That's one thing I did appreciate as a found footage film, which I didn't realize it was until, of course, I started watching it. I purposely went in pretty blind. Is that I think it's actually one of the better paced ones because, ironically, I haven't seen Blur Witch, but like, you know, I do like Chronicle. I do like, um, what's the other one I'm thinking of? I mean, obviously, Paranormal Activity was a huge one at the time. Um, but the, unlike any of those films, this doesn't really rely on the horror tropes of, oh, we can mm. use the camera as a jump scare tactic. I saw it as a way to tell more story without telling more story and what i mean is the film doesn't answer necessarily who found all this footage who edited all of this footage i'm talking about in world like the in world world of it like obviously there is an editor credited but in terms of how they found that footage who put it together you know were they able to take those timestamps out i actually found that all to be sort of additive to it in a Mm. more subtle way than most found footage films are yeah i um I, I find it interesting because it's there were things I liked about it. I liked this sort of um, I can see the the parables to things like I care a lot, like having this yeah kind of honestly um, sort of heartless um, protagonist character, mm. um, which had a lot of inter, you know intertextuality in it too. Because you know it's like whenever she was writing about something or the film that she was creating, people would constantly say, oh, well, your female your female protagonist isn't likeable. So right. I saw the, the meta sort of direction trying to be achieved there. Yeah, like yeah, the fact yeah. that we're following this person, we're not supposed to like this person, and she, write, and she writes characters, so she's sort of accounting, you know, she's reflecting the characters she's writing about and, and such. And I found that stuff 
at times it would almost go so many layers deep that it would be like a little dizzying at times. Right. That like it was very <laughs> meta. That became kind of cyclical. I wasn't the biggest fan of most of the ensemble performances. Okay. Um, yeah. I think her performance. Yeah, not every performance is great or immaculate. Um, like a lot of them, I, 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 and I actually think that some of the weaker elements of the film are the characters that surround her, because her character is so fleshed out. I actually think mm. a lot of the ensemble gets completely neglected, and and sometimes and it's kind of confusing at times that it actually and it does affect sort of the clarity of the story like there's a moment where she's monologuing when she's going on her murdering spree um to a character we've never met before who then dies not 10 minutes later off screen it was a little confusing that he was like so calm about everything at that moment right um it was it's yeah i I don't know where (laughs) What about yeah, you? Look, I think um, in terms of like the character piece stuff, because this really is a character piece and it is a very self-reflective film, obviously, with um, Gillian sort of wondering her place as a filmmaker, her place as someone who is trying to be self-expressive. And it's kind of coincidental this film came at a time because I've sort of been on this interesting rabbit hole lately on YouTube and stuff about female celebrities as of late. And there's a great video from Broy Deschanel on YouTube called The Systemic Abuse of Celebrities. Now, I watched this about a couple of weeks ago, but it goes into Miley Cyrus, Britney Spears. Um, it even goes into, um, what's her name? Prince Diana, is that it? Mm-hmm. Or Princess Diana, rather. Um, and just sort of their ability or inability to control their own image as a celebrity. And it talks about Miley Cyrus and how she sort of went from one extreme to the other in order to show herself as as an adult and as a Mm -hmm. sexual being, for example. And I took a lot of those comparisons there for this film, where this is a a female filmmaker who is trying to be self-expressive in a very unapologetic way. Now, when you see someone like her breaking into houses, killing people, filming her having sex with her partner and not telling him ahead of time, like those are things that we could very basically see and be like, that sucks. And that's a shitty thing for someone to do. But there's almost like an unapologetic side of it where mm. she's sort of almost proudly, and I, and I say this as the character, not as the filmmaker, making this film about her character. It does get very meta, gets very confusing. <laughs> but I kind of liked that it took that angle because she's almost like, well, yeah, so what if my character's unlikable? I kind of like the daringness of that. I mean, there even is that line of, I'm really jeopardizing my likability. That is a line she says in the movie. So, I, yeah, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the, the forward-facing of it. Um, I agree, not every performance is great. There's a few, like, okay. There's a couple but, of uh, cloudy story moments um, that I think would have required maybe a little bit more um, fleshing out. I, I don't... We don't ever get a real concrete concrete reason why, um, her, like, for a personal malice towards... Um, trying to remember her name now um uh, let me just have a quick guess. oh the um you're talking about the girlfriend of of yes. her friend from the opening She's, interview uh, she is cited as stalin on letterbox which i find really funny <laughs> that's actually, actually awesome <laughs> um there's no real concrete reason they can't, there's a couple of things but well, none of them 
personally affect her. No, but like it seems clear from the first scene that like this is her friend, and clearly he said some stuff in the past, winching about his girlfriend. So she becomes defensive about that. But I, it does get pushed to the nth degree. I, I you can argue how viable that is. For me, this film suffers maybe because of context of time, like the fact that I saw I Care A Lot and enjoyed that more. I saw Promising Young Woman and enjoyed that mm. a, a considerably amount more. Now, I know that as obviously you've got budget, big big difference, and this does take a little bit of a, a different genre re- approach. To... Right. Well, I definitely wrote those two films down as, as like the more hyper... Con- uh, con- uh, Jesus Christ, the word. On contemporary comparisons. So, yeah. I mean, they're totally comparable films, all three of them. Yeah. And, but... I think it's the the tightness of both of those scripts benefited both of their stories and they all kind of are in the same realm of messaging and I think I mean I mean for Christ's sake I mean promising a woman won an Oscar for its script so it, right. it just when and maybe we've just been spoiled with having those films come out in the same amount of time but mm. um they're there just seems to be more refinement with them, I think. Um, whereas this, and I think this is intentional to to an extent. I think mm. this um, character's direction is way more volatile, way more uh, frantic. I think, or way more uh, all over the place, less calculated. Like, I mean, probably a young woman is calculated to a T. Right. Um, we talk about on our review. There's only one kind of out of place scene in that that doesn't feel motivated and i care a lot is definitely very uh calculated also um in the way that they depict rosamund pike's character and her direction and they very much put on the surface her flaws as a character that kind of lead to her putting herself in a position way more compromising whereas Mm. i i think for me it's like i think the boyfriend character is very weak in this film um, he's very uh, passive and then eventually quits but his reaction he's so melancholy in in his delivery of a lot of lines mm. it, it, honestly it, to me it was like there were clear problems from the moment like very early on long before she even killed people and he just was so he, he, he was, when he, when characters in movies start to do things that a person in real life wouldn't do, like or blatantly ignore stuff because they're trying to service a plot over servicing a story, um, I start to lose uh, interest or engagement in well, the story. I don't really told. know what sort of leap the boyfriend does. First of all, I love the fact that he wears that in uh, the FCP Seven RIP shirt, like literally the entire film. Like, do that's, not know that's, what that shirt is. No, that's Final Cut Pro. Uh it's an edit. It's an editing thing. Okay, but like, I just found it funny. He wears that same shirt every day. Yeah, because it this does do like the sort of love at love Netflix series that that's the series I'm referring to. So it does that thing where it is very like in house and like oh everyone in the film is an editor or or an actress or they all have student debt. Like I like that. It's sort of that whole thing. And then the, the, um, inside the head, cause that's the first thing the boyfriend says is he makes a comment about working for a female director and being annoyed that she's asking him like, Oh, but what would you, what do you think about this scene? 
So I think off the bat, they sort of establish him as someone who's not really attentive to his own relationship, has these selfish needs. But that being said, I don't think he meant to like him, but by the time that he, you know, opts to leave or he's questioning his girlfriend's decisions and motives, mm. you do understand. I think because she is acting completely out of character. And the other point. thing was the fact that his story doesn't get really a conclusive end. Like, I mean, you feel like his ending needs to involve him either being killed by her or or some form of final uh, confrontation, I feel, and, and we mm. never get that. Um, because, you know, obviously we get the Starling conclusion, um, and his last scene is just kind of being like, I want my stuff back at that uh, that cafe. Right. And I just feel like it's, it's you know, in terms of... Because so, he's the person who has seen this transfer, most of this transformation occur, right? Like... His character, for the longest time, is actually the one in the most danger. Hmm. Like, he is. Because he's the one that's so in prox... And, and, you know, she had started killing people before they broke up. So it's like... There are times... that It's a time where it's like she cooks them dinner and they're awkwardly sitting. It's actually a really strong scene. Because you feel... You feel for him. You feel he's in danger. Right. And you feel the awkwardness. So it is just a shame that he kind of just goes, oh, I'm breaking up with you. You know, she gets really upset. And then they have that final kind of public X fit that it wasn't like, to me, there needed to be something a little bit more conclusive there, I think. I guess, but I know, I know for me, like when I was watching, it felt like it was going to the appropriate because the very beginning scene where she sort of pitches to the her friend, it's almost like she's pitching to him like, oh, this is how we could maybe lose our virginity to each other. It was sort of that same tone, but instead it was for her sort of snuff film almost. I felt like from the beginning, the film was all about that relationship that she had with this guy and then the torment that his girlfriend was supposedly giving him. And I didn't. I never felt unsatisfied by the boyfriend's exit or the fact that yeah, we didn't get enough. that scene because I, I wasn't thinking about that after. So I don't know. That personally didn't bother me, but I see what you mean though yeah. in terms of... It was. I was wondering that question of like, oh, like her, is her final target going to be him or is it going to be someone else? And spoiler alert, it's not him. But yeah, I also wasn't like disappointed by the answer or anything like that. Mm, fair enough. So, I don't know. I, I look. I really like this film a lot. I think it does. It definitely is sort of the uh, a different take on what I care a lot and promising young woman does. Of course, the I film would love to know the budget. Right. Like, I like the ability the film's ability to kind of pull on all of its very limited resources and use them to the fact bringing in a GoPro and using it in yeah. kind of in integral scenes and um, using your mobile phone. And it, it, there's a lot of positives in the sense that I really do feel this film probably has a budget of less than, I'd have to be less than like 50 grand. Like it wouldn't, it mm. probably wouldn't go past that. I can imagine like, I think there were SAG after or SAG after actors in the film, according to the credits. So that probably would have bumped it up a little bit, just because they would have had to pay them a decent wage. But no, it wouldn't have been uh, a big budget. But like I said, I kind of I think it really does lean into that in a way that is really. I love the shots of her like pulling the mechanism and dollying on herself. Like this is so so genius. Like, hey, this is what we're working with, sort of thing. But making it a part of the story and making it. Makes sense. Yeah. So, um, I 
<clears throat> excuse me. I really do appreciate that aspect of it. Fair. Yeah. No worries. Well, I blame society. He's coming out in a couple of weeks. Yeah, sir. Like I said, you can uh, catch the Perth premiere. I think it is at Luna on the 19th of May. So it's very soon. So check it out at Big Screen if you dare. Very exciting. <laughs> but until uh, before then, we're going to be moving into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, watching Dick Johnson is dead. Just the idea that I might ever lose this man is too much to bear. He's my dad. Let's start walking. Just start walking to me. That's fantastic. I suggested we make a movie about him dying. (laughs) He said yes. (laughs) But now it's upon us. The beginning of his disappearance. The thing I hate most about my memory loss is that it hurts people's feelings. You know that you woke up in the middle of the night last night. You got fully dressed. Do you remember any of that? No. Yeah. What can we do about that? I don't know. Everybody has to sort of prepare because everybody dies. I love life too much for that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, sweetie, your father is is a wreck. It's just inevitable and a part of who we all are. Yeah. The fact that he's willing to keep doing this. He's doing for you with love. He's doing it for me with love. Yeah, he'll do anything for me. Can you just, like, put one arm up against the wall? Like, yeah, that's nice. (laughs) That is brutal. Director Kirsten Johnson seeks a way to keep her 86-year-old father alive forever, utilizing movie-making magic and her family's dark humour, she celebrates Dr. Dick Johnson's last years by staging fantasies of death and beyond. Oh, spooky. It's a ghost story, Zeke. <laughs> so this film got a lot of praise last year. Um, yes. For being uh, kind of unique and funny and really hitting home some emotional points. And yeah. It's sort of, it's funny because, you know, we did talk a little bit about My Octopus Teacher, which is also a film that kind of looks inwards, Mm. um, looking more in that situation as the filmmaker apparatus, what it means to be a filmmaker. Um, Whereas this one was looking really personable. It was focusing solely on a relationship between a father and a daughter. Yeah, so I think, jumping right in, I think this is sort of, very clearly, you watching it, and we haven't seen, at least I speak for myself, I haven't seen any of Kirsten Johnson's other films. Nope. Um, I know she's made some pretty um, rave documentaries, and I don't know if any of them are as personable as this one, but they are. They do seem interesting in premise. I definitely want to check some more, more of them out. But yeah, almost immediately, you could sort of tell with this film where, yeah, like I said, the premise about you know filming her father and these sort of fake death scenes they're going to create, but it's a way for them to bond, and I thought... This is such a true capturing of a family portrait. And it goes into different layers when you have you know, Dick Johnson, the father. He's looking at old photographs of, of his family tree and his mm-hmm. family legacy. And then you have scenes where Kirsten Johnson is like, oh, I didn't know that. There's a scene when he mentions like, oh, no, I have lost patience. I've lost patience before. I've lost at least two. And she didn't know that. And sort of that journey that this film captures, and of course she captures it herself. It's very much her mission to do that. Uh, we can get into the her mother that we don't see much of in the film later. 
But no, this is absolutely a thousand percent the capturing and the crystallization of a family portrait, which, you know, I have regrets sometimes. I wish I did that more with maybe some of my family who have already passed on, but um, very admirable and I love the idea and I love that it goes in that surrealistic way with all the the fun surrealistic scenes that we get into. Yeah, I think the the film at the end of the day, what it's trying to achieve is is a celebration of of one's life, and mm. um, honestly, it's the way that a you know a, this artist has decided this is how she wants to kind of approach this acceptance of you know her loved ones eventually passing away, and she sort of discuss you know it's her exploration in talking about the documentary as a platform to give her closure on not only her dad but her mother mm. who um and i find that really interesting um the sort of just simplicity but at the same time having such original and, and unique spins like um you know the way that she expresses that you know if she sees like her her dad dying in all of these comedic ways it's sort of like a weird sort of uh uh it's an acceptance in a way yeah and, a, and like they like it says in the log liner you know dark humor sense um and um i think that that's really interesting um because when you think about this documentary it's like oh okay well um we don't know who Dick Johnson is. Why, why, why do we care so much about this person? We've never met. He doesn't seem like an extraordinary person. And obviously throughout the documentary, I think we really find out sort of this man was pretty extraordinary. Like he, just cause he didn't win like, you know, awards or he wasn't a celebrity, you know, he went through his life and he was very accomplished. And it's interesting to kind of take that perspective. Cause it's like, mm you know the documentary gives validity to everyone that we really should you know celebrate the unique journeys we all go on as individuals but also the people in our life that where you know we affect and it's like mm. all of these people that come into the office and talk about dick as if he had died and how many of them she had never met before or, or heard stories that she had never heard of before from them yeah is, is pretty cool it's like you said, it's like th this isn't a person who's inherently special. This isn't a documentary about Charlton Heston or yeah. someone like that. You know, this is a documentary about a guy who, he is special to the filmmaker. Yeah. So the filmmaker is going to make him special through this. And, and, and she absolutely does in the sense that we see his personality. And we don't, I mean, we obviously learn, you know, anecdotal things about his past and his job and stuff. But this isn't a film about him and his patients, for example. No. It's a film very much in the moment about him and his charming, witty, fun personality that he has, even in his you know early to mid uh, 80s, it's, it, it, this film does sort of take a chronological approach where we do start at the beginning of when you know the, the doco is being made and then it sort of chronologically or linearly goes for the timeline until I think he's 86 by the doco's yeah. end. Um, but yeah, I think the fact that it was so in the moment and really cherishes him um and that, that is juxtaposed to the mum where i i don't think this doco is in any way about uh preserving the image of of kirsten's mum because or christian's mum i get confused because it's k-i-r mm -hmm. not k-r-i but anyway um i don't think it is about her mum at all because she admits to failing to capture her mum in her prime in her mm -hmm. essence and the only footage we do see of her is 
on the far end of her mental state and it is tragic and very sad and it's almost like this is her way to to avenge that to almost yeah. make up for that mistake which i i i mean it's awesome i think it's yeah. great i think um from i think the reason that this film is liked so much is because it it, it takes a concept that we all are aware of but it always sits in the the back of our minds and having it kind of come to the forefront is that that acceptance because you know we all have mothers and we all have fathers and we all accept that there's a good chance that we're going to be around and they're not going to be around someday Mm -hmm. so um it's very easy to put yourself in the shoes of of kirsten or you know and see what it's like for her to be going through watching you know the slow decline of his state um and just seeing like how open he is with you know accepting the fact that he's turning 86 and he's coming to the end of his life and being so open to express a lot of just himself on camera is is amazing in terms of coverage yeah exactly it, he, he doesn't hide at all because he never takes like he, ne- he never takes a super melancholic state about it he's not too uh sad because he's lived a you know a really good life and then mm. so a lot of it is quite uh he's just open to doing what's required of him and and just enjoying this time with his daughter yeah well even and this is in the trailer and at the beginning of the film when she sort of narrates very early on you know her pitch to her dad like oh let's make a movie about you dying and there's that little pause before the and he said yes mm. as in like it is a surprise that he went along with this this is part of his personalities that he isn't to weird creepy ideas like this this is almost a perfect back-to-back comparison to i blame society because mm-hmm. not only is it about two sort of two raw windows into the mind of two filmmakers mm-hmm. one being sort of a, a self-parody and the other being a, a very legitimate documentary um but the idea that she's like all right we're gonna do this we're gonna do this weird idea and unlike in the fictional story of i blame society the characters around Christian is like, yes, let's do it. Let's do this weird mm. film idea you have. So it sort of is a weird juxtaposition between those two. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's it's probably, you know, the the exploration into death and, and sort of that part of life and confronting it head on and still putting those, you know, those satirical or dark humour spins on it mm. um, does definitely pad out, I think, some of the the toughest subject matter that the the documentary contains, and I I think it has a really strong balance between the two, like balancing the humor and the sort of because mm. uh, you know when you get to the latter the the latter part of the documentary, the final couple of s- scenes with certain things that happen, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about yep. other, you know, shortly, um, they balance out the you know. It's it's funny seeing a air conditioning unit land on um, this dumb <laughs> poor Dick Johnson, <laughs> on, uh, and um, that's a really funny way to lead into uh, this very quirky idea, but still manage to when there are serious moments to let them breathe, to yeah. let them have their their time too. That was an interesting aspect because um, they could have done that where it, it just sort of front load the film with all the fun goofy let's make a movie stuff and then sort of it's almost like this is the weirdest comparison we're gonna make it it's like click 
mm-hmm. where Click is a really fun film with Adam Sandler, and then like The Last Thirty is just like dreadful, and by dreadful I mean just like sad and murky and like hits you like a truck. Mm. And this film does ebb and flow and sort of mixes in the more intimate scenes where you know they're having serious discussions about their future, and then it cuts to them having fun again, and then it sort of goes back into a more serious. It does sort of go in and out, and I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know necessarily what that does with the pacing. I felt nothing more than disorientated by it, but I also didn't think it was a bad thing. It almost felt a little bit like I was sort of developing dementia in a way mm. of like, oh, this is a bit... We're kind of going Did back Did you like when they kind of came out of nowhere sometimes? Like when he would... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like those scenes a lot of like the fun, yeah. surreal stuff where they're all dressed up there on sets and doing crazy... You gotta have that the was... Dumb Ways to Die song playing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ways to die. that's a classic that takes me back to high school immediately mm. just playing that in class <laughs> it was such awesome so many dumb ways to die <laughs> but no it's true and like i mean that that was an idea i just thought of this now that was an idea i had in high school as well was mm. we made we filmed uh, we made a film or tried to make a film called 100 ways to die in a5 which is like the little block that we we're in i think that's such a such a raw premise that so many people like to tease is oh what's the funniest dumbest way you can die it's mm. sort of a very general thing now that I think about it. I feel like so, at least most people think about it or they make jokes about it in yeah. some way. A million um, Ways to Die in the West does it for, what, the first 10 minutes? And then <laughs> it's like, oh, we have to do a movie, don't we? Oh, God, that bloody movie. I was, you know how disappointed I was? Yeah, I think everyone Because I loved Ted. I loved Ted. Yeah. Anyway. No, but I, I think just that concept is so... Um, shockingly universal just the full because you're right it's something that we don't necessarily think about directly every day of our lives but right. it's it's an inevitable thing that we cannot change is that we're all going to die one yeah. day so i think it is sort of inherent of humans to just to make it a comedy to think of funny ways to kill someone and in this case with dick johnson it's like yeah what if like this pole hits him or he he falls down the stairs and he lands in this comical pose i mean pose, yeah all of that's quite fun um and the way they mix it in like I said, I think it was a little disorientating at times, but I, I like that despite the intimate scenes where they're having these conversations mm-hmm. and they're, they're talking about what happened to mum when she started to lose her mind. Um, by the way, happy Mother's Day, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but this past week, and we're talking about this film about a dad. Um, we'll mix it up. We'll do Father's Day as a, as a mum film. We'll make that happen oh, yeah, sure. later in the year. <laughs> but despite those scenes being like the heavy stuff that really gets you down, every like death scene where he dies in a comical way, they never not show the the behind-the-scenes bloopers of said scene. Mm -hmm. And it kind of reminded me a bit of how the early Disney Pixar films would put little bloopers in their credits. Yeah. As a way to sort of, you know, soften the the levity of the situation of, oh my God, this this guy, Dick Johnson, that, you know, I'm falling in love with watching him on Mm -hmm. screen. He's so charming and charismatic and fun. He's such a nice guy. He just died on screen in this horrific way, even though it's sort of shot comically. Mm Mm-hmm. I like that they never linger on that too long. They always cut to like the process of it and him having fun on set. And I think that was a clever way to sort of lift yeah. the levity of it. Especially when you get to the, the final, sort of the, the final scene of the film, mm. sort of the summation of the film. Because um, I think that the purpose of the film is sort of, like we said, to explore this person that's not famous or he's not, um, you know... He's an extraordinary person, but he's not in the the limelight sort of. Type he could of be person. your neighbor. 
He could be your neighbour, and I think that's the that's exactly you're hitting the nail on the head there. And you fall in love with him over the duration of the the documentary because of just how much of a genuine nice person he is, how much mm. fun he is to be around, how open he is. So when you get to the final scene, where you know we actually at first we don't know, um, that, you know, there's a funeral for him at the end of the film and. And well, the, the lead into that funeral as well, you got to remember, is, is he has the birthday cake. Mm-hmm. He's at turning 86. But there's sort of a melancholic... It's such a raw scene mm-hmm. of him with you know a couple of the kids and, and Christian and having this cake. It's quite quiet. And then we cut to a very... It comes up with a legend, a very specific date when he's presumably having another heart attack in the ambulance. Yeah. And it's like, crap, is this it? Because as, as an audience, I don't know if he's actually dead or not. No. I'm not. I'm not googling this while watching. I'm just watching the film. Yep. So you go into this funeral sequence, like, wow, this is it. You're like he's dead, and this is the moment we've been waiting for. That's how you think you. And that's so cool. And yeah. and then they do one of the one of the best sort of swerve moments in a documentary, <laughs> and it turns out it's it's a staged funeral, mm. and Dick Johnson's watching from. A room seeing this service it's sort like, of unfold like a little and <laughs> that's one of the most fascinating things to think about and mm-hmm. consider and sort of what this documentary kind of you know has one of the strongest endings it could have because of sort of the message that comes out of this like he is seeing his funeral unfold before his eyes mm. and his reaction like his pure unfiltered reactions is is kind of mostly kind of uh solemn he's not he's not overly talkative he's not laughing he's not really upset he's kind of just taking it observing it yeah yeah no it's it's you're right it's interesting because it's i think on the base surface level it is that reminder of like you know the thing that people say which is usually inappropriate timing when people say it but it's a whole why can't we celebrate their life before they pass away? And it's like, technically, a funeral is a celebration of life. But this is that way, where it is, you know, it's a fake, you know, there's a coffin there, mm-hmm. and they sort of fade it out, technically, or they have Dick Johnson up in the, the sky watching them yeah. before. And it, it's sort of that clever thing, which we'll get into soon with the reflective filmmaking going on here, but there are little hints throughout of, wait, maybe he isn't dead. Because, like, this shot isn't motivated, because he's not there. And then, oh, wait, he's back there behind with... With Christian watching the funeral, but it is a celebration of his life because when he walks out and everyone sort of applauses, it's like we've just gone through this thing, this sort of ceremony that we understand iconography is he's gone. Mm-hmm. This is our last chance to talk to him. Now here he is in the flesh walking out. So there's sort of this subconscious or a psych not subconscious a psychological effect on everyone where it's like wow here he is. We sort of had a brief moment of theater where everyone thinks that he's gone mm-hmm. and now he's back and i don't want to get all jesus christy here but you know you could make that little analog in that very small little sequence yeah i mean i think it just comes back to i think the the purpose of the scene is is to have that that love and to appreciate them while they're still around because mm. one day they won't be and you know you might have wanted to say something to them you never did yeah. and now people there you know, if you take their mindsets now, have that opportunity because they, you know, thought he was gone and he wasn't gone, or 
And so there's definitely all of that meaning put in there, and that's mm. why it's such a strong ending. It's a powerful ending, yeah. Yeah. Now that you know they're up on the podium making these speeches, like, well, he's hearing your speech right there, right now. Yeah. It's a great opportunity to get it off your chest. So, no, it is very powerful. But um, I would like to segue into the sort of the reflective filmmaking. This is, believe it or not, I'm pretty sure this is our first doco we've ever done as the film of the week. Which, 121 episodes that's nuts that's pretty crazy actually <laughs> between that and animations man we're just on the we're on the wrong train <laughs> but look um it's definitely not only is it our first documentary but it's definitely like one of the most reflective sort of mirror against the mirror sort of documentaries i've ever yeah, seen absolutely. and you could look at something like super size me which is more Presentative than it is uh, like participatory. Participatory, yeah, exactly. Um, but with this one, there is no film without the experience and the visuals of the filmmaking. There is none. Now you have those intimate scenes with you know a daughter and a father chatting, but it's not like from a cinematography point of view that's anything special. The camera's yeah. usually hidden in the corner um, or just sitting on someone's lap you know, because the moment is so intimate that she's not trying to get a good angle on Mm -hmm. it sort of thing but a lot of this documentary does rely on the actual process of filmmaking and the fun that dick johnson is having while making those scenes Mm -hmm. and i just it kind of blew my mind it reminded me and this is why i pulled out the old film theory book whipping it out that you know whipping it out getting something out of this degree aren't we (laughs) (laughs) no so in our screen theory class this was a phrase that um one of our tutors said that really struck with me and it's that there are two experiences with film. There's the film-going experience, the experience that as you, Mr. Zeke Morgenhine, are watching the film and you're bringing all of your values and ideologies and your history yes. into what you make of this film. And then the same with me. And then we bring that to the film. But then there is also the, the second experience of the making of the film and all of the collective people that come together and make this film and it really is such a merging of those two in this situation where, like I said, the film doesn't exist without the behind-the-scenes visual of making mm. the film. And I wanted I wanted to pull this quote. I mean, in a minute to find it, so if you want to say something, you jump right in. But I want to pull this quote out from the book. Yeah, that's all right. It's really appropriate for this. Actually, could you get the light quickly, I please? I can get the light. I told you to turn it off an hour ago, and now, <laughs> now, the, now, now I need it back on. Now the sun's uh, coming down. No, I... The sun's going down. That's uh, that's majoritively pretty much all I had to say on the film. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed this film. Um, I kind of wish it got a little bit more love in terms of uh, award season. It this... was definitely the biggest, and this is a common thing, as a lot of people are saying, most of the Oscar documentary frontrunners don't even get nominated anymore. And this happened with, you know, Won't You Be My Neighbor. And this happened last year with, um, oh, God, what am I thinking of? I mean, Fire was probably our personal pick mm-hmm. that didn't get a nomination. This was definitely the one that everyone was like, how did this not get nominated? Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was in the shortlist, so bit of a shock. Very confusing. Um, yeah. yeah, but I think it's a, it's a fascinating uh, watch. Mm. So do you have your quote? I do, I do. So this is from page 180 of What is Film Theory by Richard Bushton and Gary Bettison. The book we've read many, many times, Zeke, yeah. many different chapters from it. So this is talking about the terminology uh, of film, which is sort of about the experience of it. And this is Tobshack arguing 
that the film experience is a combination of direct and meditated sensations. If what we see and hear in a film is the process of direct sensations conveyed to our senses, then these direct sensations are also given shape only within the overall meaning and structure of the film as a whole. In other words, the sense uh, perceptions we receive from a film, say, two characters... Wait, is this even the right... I'm actually starting to think I'm reading the wrong section. Because <laughs> 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 this was a little... Uh... No, I got page 180 here. Maybe I'm going down... Oh, okay, sorry. I was reading a little ahead. <laughs> it is page 180. My apologies. Just go to the, the second paragraph. Uh, so furthermore, he explains, the film itself also have direct and meditated experiences. What is inscribed on celluloid, or I guess in this case, digital mm-hmm. for this film is the material matter of images. Those things that are portrayed on the film are, for all intents and purposes, the film's own direct experiences. If the film presents a tree on screen, then what can we say that that image shows us the film's direct experience of a tree? The tree will, of course, be situated within a filmic world, quote-unquote, which the film itself constructs. For example, this tree might be a tree where two lovers have arranged to meet, therefore much of the spectator's relation to the film is composed of both direct and meditated experience. So, too, is the film itself a complete of both direct and meditated experiences. So it does sort of go into how audiences bring things with them when they watch films, but the film itself exists from a collection of, of experiences. And the fact that this is so reflective, the fact that there are scenes where Dick Johnson, the subject of the documentary, is interviewing stunt coordinators. And it's sort of like a bit of a flip where the subject is now interviewing someone else. Is yeah. the film his? And then I, I just thought it was all a little bit mind-blowing for me personally. <laughs> but you enjoyed it. Oh, I loved it. It was great. I loved all of that. No worries. Would you like to move into highlight scenes or do you have anything else? I reckon highlight scenes. Are... No worries. Mm. Um, I'd have to say, look, I, I really like the funeral sequence at the end of the film. Mm. I think it's uh, a great swerve. It's a great... The subtext you can get from it mm. is amazing. Um, so I, I think it's pretty... And it really... You know, the only reason it's as good as what it is is because we went on this journey to learn about this person right, and explore the relationship between Kirsten and her father, Dick. I mean, and that's why I think the ending has so much weight and so much gravitas because of all of the the people they interviewed along the way and, and, you know, how he unpacked it. Is your highlight seeing the friends we made along the way? (laughs) (laughs) What was your highlight scene, Jake? No, what did he have? Like a highlight scene? Yeah, probably the funeral sequence. Okay, fair enough. Okay, I see what you mean. (laughs) Sorry. Um, No, so why do I even do this show with you? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love the little edit. This is a very simple moment where um, talking about editing and mixing scenes. Mm -hmm. When she's talking about her mother and how you know her, she lost her father in a car accident that she was in that car as well. So again, Mm -hmm. leaning into that family tree. And I love that when she's talking about, you know, ever since that day, her mother had this inability to photograph things that were quote unquote hard to look at. And I just love the little editing choice of cutting to like a nice little flower and then intercutting that with Dick Johnson covered in, soaked in like fake blood and stuff. I just love that little moment. My other highlight scene, or I guess my proper highlight scene per se, is when Dick visits his old college crush. Jeff, what was it? Oh, that's great. It's a cute little scene. It's such a nice scene. It's so nice, but I just love... It's it's so different because we talked about, like, the people he affected in his life and we sort of see it, you know, his mates or his family, his wife and his daughter and that, but we don't really see him and his wife interacting. We don't really see that relationship. So it does have this tinge of difference when he sees this woman that, you know, they they preface that it's a crush. 
It's like, oh, he's visiting his crush. It's like, no, they're great friends. They're holding hands and leaning on each other's shoulders. They got all this banter. It's as if they, you know, never not seen each other every mm. day of their lives. It's, I just thought it was a nice side, a semi-romantic side of Dick Johnson. We didn't see in any other scene in the film. Mm-hmm. So I really like. I thought it was very adorable. Yeah. Uh, no worries well dick johnson's dead is currently out on netflix netflix exclusively there you go we would absolutely recommend you check that out but speaking of netflix jake what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week (sighs) buckle up zeke (laughs) what's a big one it's a big week Uh, all right let's jump right into this let's go for it Uh, let's go uh, so on Netflix this week, there was a film coming which originally was slated to release in October of 2019, but was delayed due to re-edits and then, of course, COVID. So it's been a long haul, but this oh. film's finally coming out. It's called The Woman in the Window, which sees Amy Adams play Dr. Anna Fox, an, uh, an agoraphobic uh, psychologist. I, I think agoraphobia is like sort That's... of a fear of being boxed into a situation yeah i'm pretty sure it is yeah something along those i lines. remember and... seeing a trailer for this, this oh wow shocking shocking think, i don't think this is gonna be good uh, okay well it revolves around her befriending her neighbor only to have her life turned upside down when that neighbor suddenly disappears so it does kind of have that uh we've seen this type of story before so yeah feeling it is also interesting the last film to have the fox 2000 label before being officially discontinued due to the Disney acquisition of Fox. So, a little interesting trivia right there for you. There you go. Coming to Sam this week is the 2019 Oscar-nominated Pinocchio film, which I've been keen to see, so I can finally mm-hmm. sit down and watch it. I hope that's the one they're referring to. There are a million Poker, uh, Pinocchio films, so take that for a grain of salt. Coming to Prime this week, you have David Burns' American Utopia. That's the Spike Lee joint right there, so that's very exciting. It's available on prime as well as the local film dirt music bad boys one and two captain felix with tom holland uh, tom holland tom hanks rough night with scarlett johansson and horizon line which is from the creators of 10 cloverfield lane which i adore that film uh, and sees a couple flying in a small plane to a tropical island wedding who must fight for their lives when their pilot suffers a heart attack does any of that strike interesting you you can catch dirt music that's yeah, it's a local one. I, don't yeah, think you've I mean, yet. we are on the street right now in which that's. <laughs> um, yeah, look, um, I'd probably say that the Horizon Line one sounds intriguing. Okay, them on a plane. Yeah, yeah, if, especially if it's the creators of Ten Cloverfield Lane. Bar the last fifteen minutes, great film. Oh yeah, excellent, excellent film. Exactly. Bar that, just stop watching before. Stop watching when she what, leaves what? the bunker. <laughs> So leaves a bunker. Roll credits. Spoil- spoiler alert. Yeah. It's source code. It's the exact same as source code. Is it actually? Like source code's the last 15 minutes sucks too. Like don't watch the last 15 oh. minutes of source code. I don't remember not liking the ending to source oh. code. Oh. Anyway. I don't know. So coming to cinemas, another big one. The locally distributed film Greenfield, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, yep. is getting its lunar premiere on May 13th. With producer Daniel Tenney, who's, just, I guess, a friend of mine, an acquaintance of mine, I don't know. I don't want to speak on behalf of Mr. Tenney, Zeke, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and as well as the cast, they're appearing for, appearing for a Q&A after the film. You can also catch a Q&A screening with cast member Justin Holmes on Saturday the 15th for the film Wide of the Mark, which is an Australian documentary that follows several riders and their hand-built motorcycles as they journey across the country. This looks dope. Mm. Like, visually, it looks excellent, and it's just them riding and... Bit of Easy Rider action. Yeah. Honestly, Australian Easy Rider. It honestly could be. I love the sound of that. Uh, Ima sees a young couple attempt to adopt a young boy and must deal with the consequences when they're unable to raise him 
or give him back. That sounds awesome. Sounds like a real uh, rock and hard play situation. <laughs> I just love premises where you're like, wow, what a shitty protagonist. That sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> or in this case, two protagonists. So I'm keen on that. Camilla is an atmospheric coming of age period love story with an isolated teenager, Lara, uh, struggling to find an outlet for curiosity and burgeoning sexuality. Hmm. And is this a finally? Yes, this is a finally. Finally, the man in the hat, not to be confused with the cat, uh, sees the aforementioned man in the hat journey through France with a framed photo of an unknown woman. He is also being pursued by five angry men. I watched the trailer for this. It's just as vague as that description, but it seems very aesthetically pleasing, and it's like a lovely little Amelie-esque film, and it, it seems sweet. So I'm kind of, I'm actually kind of keen to see literally all of these films. There we go. Well, we have completed <laughs> our first leg of our countdown through the decades challenge, Jake. Ooh, ten, and now ten legs. Yes, and now <laughs> we are ready to move into our second. It's the 2010s, but Jake, who was up for it? And what film are we watching? So uh, we'll talk about the results in a minute. I've got some things to say, Zeke. Oh, that's really awkward. <laughs> i got some things to say, buddy. Uh, but regardless, next week we're watching Sing Street. Your mother and I really are under a lot of pressure at the moment. We had a look at our accounts and... We're taking you out of school. We're not taking you out of school. We're transferring you. You'll be new then. What's your name? Connor Lawler. Shut up! We have a black shoe policy here, Mr. Lawler. They're brown, they're quite sensible. They're not black. Who knows what this new prison will do for you? This is your time. You see, it's beautiful. How come you're not in school? I'm a model. Cool. Do you want to be in a video for my band? See, if you're in a band, sing me a song. Take on me. We need to form a band. Connor's going to band care. You'd play every instrument on my coin. Probably. Show. Sure. It's all about the girl, isn't it? What's this? Homework. Have school in the morning. This is school. Rock and roll is a risk. You risk being ridiculed. Jesus, what are you all wearing? Yeah, we're just working that out. That's great fun. Yeah, that's really fun. Have you kissed her yet? She's got a boyfriend. Pulled off in his car, music blaring. What was he listening to? Genesis. No woman can truly love a man who listens to Phil Collins. A boy growing up in Dublin during the 1980s escapes his strained family life by starting a band to impress the mysterious girl he likes. Now, this did beat the vote against Steve Jobs, 26 to 19. So you've got some things to say. Yeah, look, okay, so... <laughs> Look, I love that we're doing Sing Street. It's, yes. It's perfect because we did once many moons ago. Yes. And it's going to be a great little tie-off for that, for the John Carney. I'm waiting for the but. No, I was just going to say, but this is the second week in a row. And this happened many times in our Decades Challenge last year where, you know, you did your vote and you got the results. Yes. And in your case, Sing Street won. It won the vote for, you know, 10 to 8 or whatever it was. Or 10 oh. to 5, whatever. It doesn't matter. And then I put my vote out. Yes. And then... Uh, the in this case the Steve Jobs film yes. is mildly ahead and it's ahead until the end and this is both weeks where the film that wins on my end doesn't get enough votes to win the total poll yes. so it ends up going to the other film and I just want to say see the American 
political system. They have a preferential ballot for a reason, sir. <laughs> <laughs> this is bullshit. <laughs> okay, well... I'm okay. I, no, it's fine, but... <laughs> to uh, console you a little bit... Okay. <laughs> um, so we take Dick Johnson, for example. We take out the film we just did. Um, I think that that could have gone either way. And it, that one was very close at the end it yeah, was like we, we yeah. both got several messages of why are you making us choose but this this, this <laughs> yeah this week's one with steve jobs and, and sing street it was why are you making me choose between these two and i was like well that's you wait till next week because next week i really don't i don't know think it gets any easier so <laughs> it, there is i think up until probably like when we get to like the 50s they're all like the 80s one is like i don't know which way that's oh, gonna go yeah you're right um and even the 90, there's some, there's some really tough polls in this one. Like, I mean, we had a couple of surprises last time we did this. Um, like I really think when we did the 2010s last time, it was under the skin versus X Machina. I, yeah, I did it, not expect I under thought, the skin to win. I thought, yeah, <laughs> X Machina was going to get that one easy and right. under the skin one. So this one, I didn't know which way it was going to go. I actually thought it was probably going to lean towards Steve Jobs because... We got more nerdy friends. <laughs> But I then kind of come to the conclusion that Sing Street added that the Carney three that music that is the most popular one is for sure. the most probably the most well known to mm. watch the most. But I'm very happy because it means I get to watch all three of those films this week. Again. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I definitely should. I mean, once is just so perfect. Um, I do want to watch rewatch Begin Again as well. Yeah. Um, just for context, because I'm gonna say, I mean, he's such a great director, and I love all of his musical films, but at this moment this could change by the time we review the film or mm-hmm. discuss the film I should say Sing Street is my least favourite of the three I'm just going to say that right now so we'll see if that changes next week that's all I'm going to say no worries but until then thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast I was Zeke I was Jake we'll catch you next week with Sing Street